There they are. Well, good morning. Welcome to Living Word Chapel. And a warm welcome to our online campus as well. My name is Mike, and I have the privilege of sharing the message with you while Pastor and James and uh, Sean are away. And today we're going to continue our series in Paul's letter to the church in Colossians with a message titled Family Matters, in which the apostle instructs the believers at Colossae that they can apply and he shows them how to apply the truth that he's already shared so far. If you remember that in all of Paul's uh, writings, all of his epistles, he always starts off the first part of his letter with doctrinal truths, theological um, truths, and, and then in the second half of his letters, uh, that's where he lays out the practical application of how to apply those truths into our lives. And so according to the pattern Paul laid out, he laid out the doctrinal basics concerning the supremacy of Christ and how God has reconciled us back to himself. Um, and that in includes us because we were so far away from God. Paul states that we were God's enemies, that we were separated from him by our evil thoughts and actions. And yet, he has reconciled us to himself through the death of G Jesus Christ, his son, through his physical body. And we're now identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Paul continues in uh, chapter 3, verses 1, through th 1 and 3, or 1 through 3, that since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and, the real, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Now the idea that believers have been raised with Jesus, that gives us a new quality a new character, new principles of life. Think about that. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. We have a new identity. We've been set free from the bondages of sin and made alive in Christ. And this new position should not simply be a, a mental note or a, a theological point for the Christian. This should radically change our life. Because our position in Christ will now enable us. That's huge. Our position will now enable us to live differently, to think differently, than, different than we did prior to our putting our trust in Christ. And we're invited to clothe ourselves you know, to put off those old fleshly patterns of behavior and to walk according to the spirit of Christ and to clothe ourselves with this new identity. And from that, then this new way of living flows. You know, as we walk according to the spirit, then the fruit of the Holy Spirit begins to develop and begins to manifest in our lives. 
And it's demonstrated in our relationships and our interactions that we have with other people. And so then we come to the second half of chapter 3, and this is where Paul shifts to that practical application portion of his letter. And he gives three relational pairings, husbands and wives, fathers and children, slaves and masters, common uh, relationships that are found in society. And he shows how the gospel of love and mercy can be exhibited in contrast to the accepted norms found in the Greco-Roman culture. And so beginning where we left off in last week in Colossians 3, verse 17, and continuing through the end of the chapter, Paul writes, Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear for the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master that you are serving is Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that today as we hear your message that our minds would be uh, alert that our hearts and our ears would be open to receive from you what the truth that you want to teach us today by your Holy Spirit. Teach us how to be light in the darkness by allowing the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be demonstrated in our lives. And today we choose to put aside those old patterns of, of behavior and thinking and we embrace the truth of our new life and position in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So I took a drink of water so that maybe that would help me not to be a dry preacher. And so let me just start off by saying that the family, the household, the family, was established by God. It was his idea. He designed it for an intended purpose. Families are an important uh, foundational part of society because they're the foundation of civilization, social relationships, and the values of a population. In fact, if you have strong families, that leads to strong communities, and strong communities then lead to a strong society. And in this family, God has established the roles and the responsibilities of the members within that family that they should occupy. Strong families begin with strong marriages. And this is where God began. In Genesis chapter 2, we read the 
a creation account in that God created man. And he saw that man needed help. And you ladies might agree with that. And you say amen. And uh, I, I remember one time that uh, Ruth had gone to Mexico or, or some trip, I forget. And I was left uh, just at home by myself and with our puppy. And, uh, you know, in Genesis 2.18, it says that it's not good for man to be alone. And the truth of that just radiates because, you know, I, I decided I was going to make some spaghetti one night. And we had this big old chub, I mean, this thing was like this, of ground turkey. And it was frozen solid. And so I did what any rational male human being would do. I went out to my shed and I got my, my saw. <laughs> I placed it on the kitchen table and I sawed me off a chunk. And then I said, well, I can't put this back in the freezer like that. So I grabbed you know, a garbage bag and I tore a piece off it, put it on there and wrapped it with duct tape and stuck it back in the freezer. And, so that's just my story. God said, it's not good for men to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. And then you recall in that passage that God brought these wild animals and birds and reptiles to Adam to see what he would name them. And so Adam's sitting there and the parade of animals going by and, you know, I can almost... You see him, he's okay, porcupine, crow, lizard. But there was no helper to be found that was just right for him. You know, I can even kind of picture, you know, God saying to Adam, hey, you know, this porcupine has a nice personality, but, uh, you know, you just can't get close to it. And so God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And he took out one of his ribs and he fashioned a woman. Now, he created a man, but he fashioned a woman. And when Adam woke up, he was so happy. He said, at last! At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh she will be called woman because she has taken from me, because she was taken from men. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Notice that God didn't take a bone from Adam's head. He didn't take the, the, the head bone because... He didn't want for the woman to be above the man. But he also didn't take a foot bone because it shows that woman is not beneath man. But he used the rib from man's side to show that they are equal with different roles in the family. The family is the foundational unit of society. And we see that God has a defined order of how a family should function. 
But in the context of our passage, Paul is writing in a time period where a culture defined by barbaric, heathen, ungodly people have created this culture that has its own version of what, it, what this order should look like, what it should be. And it doesn't look like what God intended. In the Greco-Roman household, the oldest male was the head of the family. He was like the ruler of the family or the emperor of the family. And he was given nearly limitless power over the family, especially their children. He had to say whether a child would live or die. He could sell the child into slavery or have him killed. And women were considered as owned property. You know, marriage was like a business transaction. And a woman in ancient Rome was under the social expectation of becoming a wife and mother. But that's not with the concept that we think of a mother because in ancient Rome, the mother had no legal control over her children. Now, in today's culture, we also see a distortion in the family order. Ken Ham, who's the founder and former president of Answers in Genesis, he said this, we live in a culture that seems to be attempting to redefine everything that God has ordained. This is especially seen in issues of family, marriage, and gender. Our culture as a whole is not just becoming more accepting of a new definition of family, but is aggressively pushing this redefinition as good, healthy, and enlightened. But Paul instructs the church about God's intended order in the family and society. And our passage focuses on building Christ-centered relationships at home and at work. And so today I want to share four takeaways to help us exhibit God's order in the family and the workplace, beyond what we observe in our culture. The first takeaway is this. When a wife respects her husband, it's not a step backwards, but it's actually a step forward in Christ. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to husbands, to your husbands, as a, is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Now, we saw God's intended order in creation. And his intended order is that we would have a healthy relationship between a husband and a wife. And upon that uh, marriage, then children are brought up and they'll be taught to love God. But we see in chapter 3 of Genesis that sin enters into the world. And that disrupts God's ideal purpose. After the fall, when God pronounced the repercussions of their sin, he tells Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The New Living Translation defines it or clarifies it like this. It says, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The most basic, straightforward understanding of this verse is that 
woman and man from this point forward are going to have an ongoing conflict in their relationship. It's going to become a power struggle. Sin brought discord. Both man and woman would now seek the upper hand in marriage. The man who was to lovingly care and nurture for his wife would now seek to rule over her. And the wife who was to be a compassionate support would desire to take control from him. This reminds me of a, a story about a nervous bride. She was afraid that she wouldn't remember all the parts of her wedding ceremony. And so she went to her minister for reassurance, and he told her, all you need to know is when you arrive, you're going to walk up the aisle, then you and your groom are going to approach the altar, the choir will sing a hymn, and the rest of the, the wedding ceremony will just follow naturally. And so, as the wedding ceremony begins, the pianist begins playing the wedding march, organist, if you're from that type of church, begins to play the wedding march. The bridemaid, they come out, the flower girl, the ring bearer, the procession begins, and the, the bride is nervous, and she's trying to remember what's going to happen. And so she begins to walk down the aisle, and oh, it looks so beautiful. And as she's going, she nervously whispers to herself and repeats over and over, aisle, altar, him, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. And that's been the ongoing conflict for millennia. But the good news is that Jesus comes on the scene. And he brings back redemption and restoration. And this is exemplified in his inclusion of women as part of the group that followed him. You know, he could have easily dismissed them. But instead, he ministered to them and involved them. Just the fact that he included women as part of his followers shows that he valued and elevated women beyond the, the patriarchal, patriarchal culture of the time. So what does it mean to submit? Well, the word submission often carries a nasty connotation in our society. But it must be noted that submission does not mean inferiority. Submission doesn't mean that one person is less and, and, or less important or less valuable than the other. To submit simply means to willingly put yourself under authority. For example, we read in 1 Corinthians 11:3 that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Christ submits to God the Father, and yet we know that Christ is still equal with God in every way. So men and women are equally important in Christ, and yet there's still this distinction of roles, and that's God's design 
within the family. But the striking thing about this command in Colossians 3.18 is that final phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. Because what this does is it puts Christ at the center of it all. When we take off our old patterns of living according to the culture and we, we clothe ourselves with Christ, we are enabled to align ourselves to God's intended order. Women don't submit to their husbands because they are better, smarter, or more valuable to God, but because this is what is fitting and appropriate in Christ. God designed the home, and it is fitting in the Lord that wives submit to their husbands. We find a similar instruction in the book of Ephesians where this is fleshed out even more. Ephesians 5, 21 through 24 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. The ideal husband-wife relationship exhibits the relationship between Christ and the church. The church submitting to Christ is an example for wives to follow. Our next takeaway is the other side of this relational pair. And it's when a husband loves his wife, he is leading his, his home by prioritizing what really matters most. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. This command for husbands is what will enable their wives to submit. When a husband prioritizes his wife above himself, he makes it easy for the marriage to function as God designed. Remember that sin brought this disruption in the family order. And this disruption occurred as men and women sought to live selfishly, seeking uh, independence from God, trying to get their own needs met. And so they sought to meet their own needs and, rather than preferring one another. Many times, marital strife comes from pointing the finger at the responsibility of the others to meet our needs. Rather than the way that, that Christ says that we are to take responsibility to meet the needs of our wives. And so instead of my needs and your responsibility, it becomes my responsibility and your needs. The parallel passage in Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. And we find that Christ saw the great need in humanity and he willingly gave his life to redeem us, to bring us back into right standing with God. Giving up 
our selfishness to meet the needs of our wives is part of clothing ourselves with that new identity in Christ. We become Christ-like when we prioritize our wives above ourselves. Our next takeaway focuses on the family uh, relationship between parents and children. The parent-child relationship is one of the most important relationships God has given us. And as parents, we should be filled with compassion for our children. Colossians 3.21 gives the instructions, Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. And although this verse is addressed specifically to fathers as the head of the home, the command certainly applies to mothers as well. As parents, we have been given far-reaching authority in the lives of our children. But we must be careful to use this authority lovingly and wisely. God's authority is the model for parents. He doesn't aggravate us with his commands. Rather, he leads us to what is best for us, our maturing in him. And God intends the parent-child relationship to be such that children can confidently trust the guidance that their parents provide. Now, having the role of the parents, having the role of the parents' responsibility, we find that Children that honor their parents with respect and obedience are pleased by God and a blessing to others. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. All children are expected to obey their parents. But once again, this section is about Christ-centered relationships. And so we find this additional instruction at the end of this command, for this pleases the Lord. We see God's intended order in this passage once more. The relationship of God the Father with his children is to be one of obedience as an expression of love. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. So as God's children... We obey him because we love him. And his commands are not burdensome because we have full trust and confidence in his wisdom. We obey because we love and we trust that his ways are good. Ephesians puts it this way. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. We obey our parents not only because it is right, but because it pleases the Lord. And we want to please Christ. And so as we clothe ourselves in our new identity as children who belong to God, who honor their parents in obedience. Our fourth takeaway from this passage has to do with the relationships in the workplace. And we find that you'll never go wrong when you do your work for an audience of one. This passage continues in the instruction saying, work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. 
Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. I just have to go off script a little bit and tell you a story about when I worked in the mines. You know, we would put up our laggings, you know, we, we got our work done, but it wasn't working all the time for that full eight hours. It took us a half hour to get to our workplace. And then you had to size up the job, which meant that you would grab a burrito out of your lunchbox and you'd stand there looking, you know, at the job that needed to be done and you'd eat your burrito, fill out your six points. And then you'd do your work. But when I was on the track crew, Charlie, you can... Uh, can recognize this. I worked as the guy who watched the holes of the back hole operator. So my job was basically to just stand there. And then, you know, it would, you'd start to back up, so I'd have to grab the holes, pull it back, and stand there. You'd go forward, you know, and you didn't want for him to run over the holes because then you'd have to go to the tool room and find another holes and bring it back into your work area. But I worked for a man, and we called him Ponce Verde, green belly, because his light would shine down on his green T-shirt that he always wore. And so we would be, you know, kicked back on our lagging, resting, or just sitting there talking, and we'd see this green illuminated presence coming down the, the drift, and we knew it was him, and so we'd quickly grab whatever tool, I'd grab a holes, and, and you know, he'd get the, the back hole going, and uh, I, I remember one time I grabbed the wrong holes, and he's doing his back hole thing, and I'm standing there holding this holes, and the end wasn't even connected to anything. That has nothing to do with this, other than we need to work diligently as if we were working for the Lord rather than for working for people. And the Apostle Paul challenges the cultural dynamic of slaves and masters who are now brothers in Christ. Scripture does not endorse slavery, but rather it is an instruction of living in your identity as a child of God in whatever situation you find yourself regardless of whether you're a slave or a master or employer and, or employee or owner or worker, you both serve the Lord as your master and honor God in your work relationships. Now, you might think that you work for your employer, but in reality, everything that we do is working for the, our master who is Christ. And God calls those in positions of authority not to lord it over their employees, but rather to be fair and just, living your life as an example to others. So wherever you find yourself, you serve serving Christ. So wherever you find yourself, you are serving Christ. And the book of Proverbs explains it like this, is the Lord is watching everywhere 
keeping his eyes on both evil and good. So remember that we work for an audience of one. In other words, our focus should be on how we honor God with our service. And so as I close, let this word speak to you today. God intends for us to live as his children in whatever role that we find ourselves, to have Christ-like relationships. And we should look to Christ as our example in each one of these roles that we find ourselves. Put off those old patterns of thought and behavior, which are marked by self-centered living, and let us clothe ourselves or put on our new nature. We are now in Christ, and we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, those old patterns of behavior, those norms that culture would throw at us. And we've been transformed or transferred into God's kingdom, where we have a new standard that is higher than a worldly standard. We allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to allow the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be exhibited in everything that we do and say so that it's demonstrated in how we respond and how we interact with others. We cannot control others, but we can control our faithfulness to Christ. And so as we seek to walk in God's original design for the family, the love and the submission, the love and mercy, let that radiate in everything that we do Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, respect your husbands for this is fitting to the Lord. Children, obey, honor your parents because this is the right thing to do. And employees, work diligently with all that you have. Don't follow Mike's example. Follow Christ. We work for an audience of one. So let's uh, stand and I'm going to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son to restore our relationship with you. Thank you that in Christ, we have a new identity. Those old things are gone. We've died to those things. And we've been raised in newness of life with a new identity, a new heart, a new nature, and a new purpose. Lord, let us live our lives as those that are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us not continue to walk after those old fleshly patterns of selfishness, but let us seek out to meet the needs of others. And this is especially true in the family. 
Lord, we just ask that, that you would just bless our homes. Lord, that you would guide us to be godly examples, not only to those in our family, but to those outside of our family that are looking in. May they see Christ-centered relationships. And may the love of Jesus Christ permeate everything that we say, everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.